Everybody good? Good to see you all this morning. My name is Tim Harris, pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. If you're joining us by way of Facebook Live or YouTube or uh, if you're joining us from Perry, Oklahoma or any of our uh, church partnerships, we love you guys. Thank you for being a part of worship. Any good? Gosh, really good to have all of you today. Some of you, I think, are maybe back for the first time since the pandemic. So again, it's good to have folks coming back on in. It's almost a year now. Isn't that crazy? Uh, almost a year since all of this mess started. Uh, looks like one more weekend of winter. Have y'all seen the forecast for next weekend? Oh my goodness, I'll be preaching in Long John's. It's going to be like nine degrees next Sunday. But then after that, it's spring. I don't care what the groundhog said. Uh, early spring, I'm, I'm pretty sure. We, we had a groundhog in Kentucky at one point. Y'all remember that? It was not, not long ago, like 2018, we had a groundhog. Like what happened to Kentucky's groundhog? Because I trust a local groundhog probably better than whatever Puxatawney. Sylvia, what happened to our groundhog? Yeah, yeah, it's Kentucky. Somebody ate him. Yeah, yeah, we we eat those. The groundhog is really good with brown beans, so so I'd say he's gone. It got ran over. Yeah, uh, I am finishing up next week. So this is next to the last sermon in a series entitled Growth Spurt. We're talking about spiritual growth. I've already said over and over and over what a, gosh, frustrating year 2020 was for all that seems to have been stolen from us. And uh, I don't want 2021 to be different, but if we're going to have something different, we got to do something different. I know that God wants to bless us in a rich way, and we have to make sure that we're in a place to receive it. So I want to talk about spiritual growth, and we've been doing that for weeks. We've been using an acronym, which is REFLECT, R-E-F-L-E-C-T. Today we're at C, which is Christ-likeness. There shouldn't be a surprise here for you, because I've said from the very beginning that a disciple is simply a person who follows Jesus to become like him, right? So if the goal of discipleship, if the whole point of discipleship is to become like Jesus, it should be no surprise to you that one of the ways that you can measure your own spiritual growth, your spiritual maturity, is the degree to which you are like Jesus, the way in which you walk like Jesus. I'd say it this way. The mature believer imitates Christ in a life of self-denial, sacrifice, servanthood, and sanctity. See how the Baptist preacher, all those are S words. I worked hard on that, you all. Self-denial, sacrifice, servanthood, and sanctity. This may be the word you don't know as well. What's, What's the word sanctity mean? Yeah, holiness, set apart. So yeah, we're talking about holiness here. So the mature believer intentionally imitates Christ in this life of self-denial and sacrifice and servanthood and holiness. This is what the Christian life is all about. First Peter chapter two, verse 21 is one of the many verses in the New Testament that says this very, very clearly. Christ is your example. He's your pattern. He's your model. He's the one that you're trying to imitate. And you must follow in his steps. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. That verse and several others all through the New Testament emphasize that this is the point. Uh, all of your energy is to go toward this, walking after Christ, becoming like Christ. Which brings us to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Of all the passages that talk about this, I think this is one of the clearest and I want us to dig in right here. First John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. What does it look like to walk as Jesus walked, to live the life that he lived? Let's talk about that. First John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we're living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus lived. Verse 6, those who say they live in God should walk as Jesus walked, he literally says, or live their lives as Jesus did. We are imitating Christ. Those of you who know me at all, uh, you know I love to dance. I, I know my Baptist preacher's like, what? I love to dance. I'm not a good dancer. Now, you wish that those things would go together, like the people who love dancing would actually be good at it, but no, I love it. I'm not good at it, but I love it. I will, I will dance anywhere. I'll drop my own hat to dance at the top of a hat. You know, I love to dance. I'm, I'm terrible at it, but you got to understand, I have a tremendous disadvantage because I was born Baptist. And, and in Baptist families, Baptist churches back in the day, dancing was a sin, like in the church I grew up in, we talked about it all the time. I mean, dancing was a sin. It's something that a, a Christian did not do, could not do, would not do. Jesus wouldn't dance. My preacher used to say, a, a dancing foot and a praying knee can't go together on the same leg, you know? And everybody would say, amen. I mean, it's like, what? But yeah. So I, I was always taught that dancing was a sin. Our church was serious about this now. Our pastor preached against sex for fear that it would lead to dancing. I mean, that's how serious we were about dancing. And so here I am, this Baptist kid, you know, with, with, with this dancing leg that, you know, that I don't know how to use. And, and it's way before Footloose, you all, so nobody even knew that, that it was possible. Now, I'm an old man, so pardon me, young people, for, for going back in the day. But back in the day, uh, like in the 70s when I was growing up, Disco was huge with sinners. You know, like disco was like the thing, and like disco dancing. And there were no discotheques in Woodburn, of course, but, but still, man, I just thought, man, what, you know, what even is that? That must be amazing. But I couldn't, you know, ever think about it. But, but on television in the 70s, they started like having this little five-minute dance lesson called Disco Break. Like on TV, like in the, like I'd be watching Lost in Space and then boom, it would be disco break. And they had these, like this man and woman, their names were, anybody, anybody remember this or am I just old? Seriously, nobody remembers disco break? Debbie, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> Debbie, thank you. So me and Debbie, you know, back in the day, mamma over here. Uh, yeah, yeah, disco break. There, there was a man and a woman, you remember their names? No. Scott and Jolinda. Yeah, I can't remember like where my keys are, y'all, but I can remember Scott and Jolinda. So Scott and Jolinda, like, like this was on television. They take like five minutes and teach you like a, a disco dance. This is awesome. So, you know, when they would come on, like if my parents weren't in the room, you know, to, you know, to, you know, boom, because uh, they were like borderline Amish back in those days. So I would like get up and like, you know, try to do the dance. I would imitate Scott and Zolinda. That was the whole point of disco break. So every day I could learn a new disco dance. Now I didn't because they went too fast. Scott and Zolinda just had it. You know, I mean, they just, you know, boom, boom. And I'm just, I had to really work like, you know, like if I could have slowed it down, you know, to somehow learn to imitate every move because none of this was natural for me. But Willie Ray, I loved it. I, I loved it. 
Okay, so I grew up in this Baptist family where there's no dancing ever. And so, um, as it turns out, my sister is a little bit older than me. She was a senior in high school when I was a freshman, and so my sister could do math. And she realized that I was about to come into her high school. Like her punk idiot brother was about to move in and like ruin her life. And so, and, and that was exactly my plan. And so, the first school dance was coming up, and I was going to go. And my sister realized that, like, you know, people are going to see her brother. And she knows how we're raised, right? And she knows we're going to a dance. So my sister called me into her bedroom. Now, you never went, I never went to my sister's bedroom. Like, everything that my parents said was a sin happened in my sister's bedroom. Like, it just did. Like, but now I'm talking like, like, like rock music and cosmetics, y'all. I mean, this, is, this was it. My sister, I mean, Mama, you have no idea. My sister used to like rip open the seams of like stuffed animals and hide nail polish in there, you know, because, you know, nail polish would, you know, was a sin. So she would hide it in stuffed animals. So my sister invites me into her room and says, uh, are you going to the dance on Friday? I said, yep. She said, can you dance? I said, yes. She said, show me. Okay, so from my disco break days, the only real dance I learned is, is to this day my signature move. It's the lasso. It, it's, the, it's the lasso. There were lots of dances that Scott and Jolinda did, but I really only like hung on to the lasso. So I got one move. But when my sister said, show me, I didn't do that first because you, you kind of hold, you save your good stuff, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, this is so true. Y'all don't, don't understand how we were raised. So, so my sister said, show me. Can you dance? Show me. So I just went. <laughs> right? Now, y'all know why I did that? Why did I do that? Yeah, Saturday Night Live, John Travolta. Right. Now, that was a movie about disco dancing. I've never seen it because, you know, that would be an R-rated movie and we didn't go to movies either, right? So I've never seen Saturday Night Fever. To this day, I haven't. Never seen it. Never actually seen John Travolta dance. I, I don't really know what that was, but, but in my, you know, in my young idiot brain, I had walked through the mall and seen the poster. Like in, this, in the movie poster, you know, John Travolta was always like, boom. You know, so when my sister said, can you dance? I went, pow, you know, cause boom, you know, cause that was Saturday night fever, right? She said, can you do anything else? Because this actually is not a dance. Y'all see that? Do I want to explain dancing to you Baptists? This is, this is a pose. This is not actually, like if I went out on the dance floor at one central high school and just went, pow, like, you know, my sister's life would have been over. So she said, do you have anything else? So then I, then I showed her my lasso thing, right? You know, it's just like boom, boom. And my sister, y'all, she was like this. My sister made me promise never to do that again. Like, don't ever do that. But see, it's all I knew because all I could do is imitate what I had seen. And I hadn't seen anything. I'd never seen actual humans dance. Anywhere, ever. One time, Mama fell down the, the carport steps carrying groceries, and that was kind of rhythmic movement, you know, boom, 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 but, but hardly dancing. 
Like, I don't have anything actually to imitate, and, and, and this is my struggle, and this is why I want to remind you that the Christian life is about imitation. It's all about imitation. Your life in Christ has one purpose, and that is to become like Christ. Your life itself, the time that Christ gives you is to be spent with one goal, and that is to become like Jesus. Everything that the Holy Spirit is doing in your life right now and tomorrow and the next day, and Lord willing, the next day, all of it has one goal, and that is to help you become like Jesus. That's it, you all. That is everything. That is the secret to life, and that is the purpose of the Christian life. You're imitating Jesus. You're becoming like Jesus. You've got nothing else that takes priority over that. We're imitating Jesus. And and that's why John says, in the clearest language possible, those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we're living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus is, should walk as Jesus walked. So here's the thing. This is the point. What you're supposed to do is look at your life and make sure it looks like Jesus. Like, period. That's it. Look at your life and make sure it looks like Jesus. This is what the message of 1 John is saying. It is what everything in the Christian life leads you toward. You want to look like Jesus. The life that you live, in, in the place where you live, in, in, the, in the way that you live it, in all the places you go, the way you talk, the way you walk, the way you handle money, the way you deal with your spouse, all of it has to look like Jesus. This is the Christian life. This isn't the Christian life for like super Christians. This is the ordinary Christian life. This is it. That's it. So, if your aim is to look like Jesus, the question becomes, so what did Jesus look like? What was Jesus like? If if my life is to look like his life, then what did his life look like? Y'all remember uh, several years ago, probably back in the 80s, um, a lot of kids wore bracelets that said WWJD on them. You can still see those sometimes. People still wear them. WWJD. What did WWJD stand for? Yeah. What would Jesus do? This goes back for generations, all the way back to a book called In His Steps, which suggests to a person that that one of the things you should do in life, one of the ways you make decisions is just stop and ask yourself, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Now, I totally agree with that in principle because we are supposed to follow in his steps and we are supposed to walk as Jesus walked. And I am trying to imitate Jesus. But it's just that idea that you could put on a bracelet or that you could just stop and ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And somehow you're going to know. Now, I don't know you this well, but I don't trust you. I don't trust you like that, and I don't trust myself. I just don't trust that. I don't know that you can just know what Jesus would do just by asking the question into the universe. You know what I'm saying? I just, I'm not so sure that this is how any of that works. Now, the reason I say I don't trust you and don't trust me is I think we have this terrible habit of just sort of imagining Jesus more or less in our image, We recreate him more or less like us, like a better version of us. That's just how we are. 
So if I ask you to think about Jesus or what are the things that Jesus would say or what are the things that Jesus would do, more than likely, what you do is just sort of think of all of the wonderful attributes that you aspire to. The things in your life that you think are good, like love and, and peace and kindness and recycling. You know, you would put all this together and inflate it and project it up into heaven with a halo and you would sort of start imitating that. But it really becomes something that you've sort of created, something that you've imagined. This is why in your life of following after Jesus, you don't find it that difficult because let's be honest, in your mind, as it turns out, Jesus happens to like all the things that you like. And he also happens to be against all the things that you're against. Isn't it amazing how that works? So in the church where I grew up, if as long as I didn't dance or smoke, you know, vape, as long as I didn't listen to rock music, you know, as long as I sort of followed all of the rules that our, that our church community had sort of, you know, elevated, as long as I lived within the rules, then I could tell myself that I was following Jesus, that I was living like Jesus. But do you understand how the scriptures have not a word to say about, you know, vaping, dancing, rock music, long hair, and fingernail polish? Do you understand? But do you understand how easy it is, how simply easy it is to sort of recreate Jesus in our image so following Jesus just simply becomes sort of walking in, a, in the very best version of ourselves. So when I say live like Jesus in your mind, it's just you being the best possible version of you. Like you, if you didn't, you know, say bad words in traffic. You know, you, if you had patience with your children, that, that sort of thing. You, if you didn't, you know, always, you know, tell, you know, racist jokes. Just you, if we could improve you. But that's not at all how this works. You understand, Jesus didn't die to make you a better version of you. Jesus died to make you to be like him. And what you and I always fail to understand is the distance between me and him. Notice what it says right here. He is the sacrifice for our sins. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the only one who is truly righteous. He's Jesus, the righteous. I am not righteous. You're not either. Apart from Jesus, I have no righteousness. So you and I, see, we just underestimate the distance between us and him. We underestimate the difference between, you know, me being the very best person I could be and the righteousness of Christ, which is unattainable to me apart from his grace. Do you understand? And so we have this idea that following Jesus is just us, you know, working on ourselves, taking some attributes from Jesus, his love, his peace, you know, and trying to add that to improving ourselves. But this isn't how it works, and that's not the point of anything. He didn't die to make you a better version of you. Jesus died to make you to be like him. And so this is why you and I just stepping out going, see, what would Jesus, what would Jesus do? You know, the chances of you're predicting that, I, I just don't have a lot of confidence in. Because here's the thing, a lot of people don't really know what Jesus would say or do in any situation because they don't really know what Jesus actually said and did. I mean, just honestly, it's kind of like when I was going to dance like John Travolta. 
But all I'd ever seen was the poster. See, some of you are going to imitate Jesus, but you only come to church on Easter. I mean, or like you saw a picture once in Sunday school of Jesus with children in his lap. So it's in your mind that he's a very nice man who loves children. But you don't really have any idea what actually Jesus said and did. I mean, honestly. If you look at the scripture, which is the place where you should look, the scripture gives us a, the, the, the fullest witness to Christ's life that, that you and I will have. And the thing about it is, nobody could ever predict what Jesus was going to say and do. I mean, the people who knew him really, really well, his followers were always amazed at what he would say and do. He was never predictable. Nobody predicted that he would walk into the temple and turn over all the tables from the money changers. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody saw that coming. When Jesus would preach a sermon, at the end of it, the believers would pick up stones to kill him. I mean, he really rarely preached a sermon that was well-received. Nobody necessarily could understand what he would say, and nobody would expect him to say what he said. When the Pharisees brought the woman caught in adultery, nobody thought he would say, I don't condemn you, woman, go and sin no more. I mean, nobody saw grace coming. Nobody saw the cross coming. Do you understand? They never saw his dying on the cross, rising from the dead. Nobody saw that coming. So if you think that you're just going to, you know, stand back, ask the question into the sky, and come up with an answer, I'm, I'm not trusting you with that. A lot of people don't know what Jesus would say or do because they honestly don't know what Jesus actually said and did. The thing is, Jesus had higher priorities, he had a higher purpose, a higher principles. It's not just that like you and I could, could think of all the wonderful attributes that, that, that make for a good person. Jesus is associated with all of those. Make no mistake. He is love and peace and patience and he, he is kindness and he's perfect justice. It's all of these things. But he's perfect in all of his ways. He's, he's, he's perfect love. So while you and I can kind of understand love, we don't know perfection, and so we don't understand perfect love. We sure don't understand perfect justice. We don't understand perfection. And Jesus is perfect in all of his ways. And that's why when you and I just started, you know, we just sort of try to imitate some of his patience, a little bit of kindness, a little bit of love. See, that's always doomed to fail for us. We're not going to improve ourselves by picking a few of, you know, Jesus' attributes and trying to practice those. Jesus was beyond just, you know, being a really good example of a, of a good human being. He was literally moved by higher priorities. Jesus said, I have come into the world to do the will of my Father. Period. Come into this world to do the work of, of my Father. Whatever I see my Father doing, that's what I'm going to do. I mean, single-minded focus. Jesus said, I've come into the world to seek and to save the lost. I mean, you know, purpose. And nothing pulled his eyes away from his purpose. Nothing took his feet off the path to the cross. You understand? He was always driven by higher priorities and deeper principles and the Father's purpose. And these are the kind of qualities that you and I have to imitate. It's a whole lot beyond you just trying not to say bad words. It's an entire uh, recreation, an entire uh, remaking of your heart from the inside out. I, I know most of you well enough as your pastor to know that a number of you struggle with, with doubts about your salvation. 
people who come into my office or call me all the time just to say, you know, Pastor Tim, I just, I don't, I'm not really always sure that I'm a believer. I'm not sure I'm a Christian. And I'll ask them, you know, you know, is there any time, a moment in your life when you feel like you turned your life over to Christ? You know, the scripture says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you put your faith in Jesus and asked him for the gift of salvation? And, you know, yes, I've done that. I've done that. I've, you know, I asked Jesus into my heart. I was baptized, but I still struggle with doubts. Okay, I, I don't have an answer that's going to fit everybody, but I just want to call your attention to 1 John. And, and if you struggle with doubt, 1 John's your book. Go home and read it, and then read it again, and read it again, and read it again. Because he loves this little phrase, this is how you know. So if you have trouble knowing, if you sometimes doubt, then this is how you know. And John says it all the time. Verse 3, we can be sure we know him. You can be sure. He says it. We can be sure you know him if we obey his commandments. This is how we know we're living in him. Those who say they live in God, so live their lives as Jesus did. Understand, for John, it's not something that you're going to have to guess at. You're going to know. You're going to know. But the proof is in your life. Now, I'm not saying that any of us are saved by being good people because we're not good people. And you're not saved by doing good works because you just aren't going to ever do enough good works. You're a sinner, just like I I'm a sinner. So John isn't saying that we're saved by good works, but he's saying if you really want to know if you're a Christian, look at your life. Look at your life. Is it a life of obedience? Is it a life of walking after Jesus? Look at your life. And, and this is what I just want to suggest to you. Some of you struggle with assurance of your salvation, and, and the reason for that is you've never grown. As a believer, you've never grown. Jesus said to Nicodemus that it's being born again, that, that, that you come into the kingdom by being born again. And you're familiar with that language that, you know, it's a new birth. Salvation is a new birth. But the thing is, when you're born, you're supposed to then mature. You're supposed to grow closer to Jesus. You're supposed to know more and become more like him every single day. But a lot of us don't. You just don't. That's not your life. You got saved and you probably got baptized at some point, but then they wiped the water off of your chin and you haven't taken another step toward Jesus. You haven't. You don't read your word. You don't read the Bible. Unless somebody's reading it to you, you're not getting it. You've really never figured prayer out. And I'm just telling you, the Christian life is a life of maturing into a grown-up believer, a mature believer. It's not about staying a spiritual baby your whole life. You understand what I'm saying? I don't, I don't, I don't want to sound ugly. I, I want to tell you something really true. You're supposed to grow. You, you, you have to grow. And this is how you know, John says, this is how you know. We can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, a person's a liar, not living in the truth. You have to follow him. You have to obey him. You have to grow. Those who say they live in God should walk as Jesus walked. So how do you do that? Let's just quickly, I'll give you two things. First, uh, I would say it this way. You got to get over yourself. Now, I'm not being funny or, or, or trying to sound hip. Um, Jesus said the same thing, only he would say, you must deny yourself, same thing. You gotta get over yourself. This is the hardest thing you and I will ever do. I mean, honestly. Christ must matter to you more than you matter to yourself. I mean, I don't know anything 
else to tell you. And again, I'm not saying this is for people who really want to, you know, woo, be super Christian. So this is, this is entry level. This is basic Christianity. This is the normal Christian life. You just got to want Jesus more than you want anything else. You got to love him more than you love yourself. And this is hard. It's really, really hard. You got to get over yourself. This kind of self-forgetfulness, self-denial, where does it come from? That's why I love, that's why I love this passage. Uh, verse 5, those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. Notice how John connects this language of, of imitating Jesus, this language of obedience, with the language of love. This is how you show how much you completely love him. It, it, it's love. See, love is the thing. You don't become like Christ by trying to become like Christ. It's not about your effort. It's about the power of Jesus to transform you. The scripture says that one day you're going to stand before him, and in that moment you're going to stand before him, and you're going to be just like him, and you're going to see him as he is. In other words, there is no chance that you get to the end of this thing as a believer and stand before Jesus and not reflect his image perfectly. You're going to do it. It's going to happen. The spirit will complete his work in you. Now, it sounds in a lot of ways very, very difficult. You have to deny yourself. You have to learn to make Christ matter more than anything else. And as hard as that sounds, I'm telling you, the secret of that is love. It's a loving relationship, and love has tremendous transforming power. Ask anybody who's in a good marriage. Ask anybody who's ever been a parent. Love will make you forget yourself real quickly. You know, like, you look at your dad and you wonder, man, why does my dad dress like such an idiot? You know, why does he dress like a moron? Like, he's so embarrassing to be seen with my dad, you know. But you don't understand. Before you were born, your dad was cool. You know, when a parent has a kid, all the cool's just sucked right out of them. Because at that point, you're more concerned that the kids have nice clothes and you have nice clothes. So that's why your dad's still walking around in clothes from the 80s like he's Fresh Prince. You know, because he's now forgetting about himself and taking care of you. This is how it works. That's how marriage works. Now, those of you who know my wife, Casey, she's amazing. Y'all know she's amazing. And y'all never said it out loud, but I can see it in your eyes. You look at me and you look at Casey and you think, how did he ever get a her? And that's not a joke. Y'all know it's true. Like, all, say amen. I mean, my wife's amazing. And like, I married way above myself. I mean, it's like, what? Like, Casey dated, like, all these really cool guys. She only dated one dork in her life, and she married him. There's a lesson in that, girls, right, right there, you know? So I was just a giant dork. Casey's family is, like, wealthy, you know, lived in a really nice house. Like, they would eat dinner. Like, we had supper. You know, they had dinner at a table with, like, cloth napkins and china and, like, multiple forks and like, what? Like, her family was like, like watching Dallas or Dynasty or, you know, like, in the old days, like that kind of family. You could also see my family on television, you know, if you're watching, like, Sanford and Son or, you know, Beverly Hillbillies, hee-haw. Um, so just to put us together is just the craziest thing, I mean, just the craziest thing. And, and just as individuals, we're so different. I, I, I was the coolest guy ever. I, I just thought I was so cool in college. Uh, and part of my coolness was just, like, not caring about stuff, you know, like, like being clean. I had a car, and it was just like a rolling garbage dumpster. I mean, just a rolling garbage dumpster. Because I'd go through drive through windows like Taco Bell, McDonald's. I'd just eat in the car, and I'd throw the paper right in the car. Like, my, whole, my car was just trash, you know? Like, you could find food. 
I'm not kidding. Some of, some of y'all got that car right now. I mean, it's just, it was, it was, but I lived that way and I love my life. In college, I lived in, a, in, a, in an apartment with a, with a guy who's a bigger slob than me and we were so happy, like two pigs in mud. Just happy as we could be. We were. See, I've never understood the logic of neatness. And there's a logic to it, but I don't get it. Like the whole logic of making a bed, you're just going to get back in. I'm a smart guy. I'm a smart guy. And I would get up in the morning and I would think, why would I make that bed? Because I'm leaving the house. I'm leaving the house. And this house is going to sit empty all day. So nobody's going to see my made bed except, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'm going to come back home and get in it. So why would you make it? Now, none of you can argue with that logic. It's perfectly logical. Making a bed makes no sense. In my mind, washing dishes, like, you know, worrying about dishes. I I don't know why you worry about that. For that matter, if there is a stench coming out of your refrigerator or your trash can, I don't go investigating that. I'm going to move. I mean, you know, like, why go looking for trouble? This was just who I was. And then I met Casey. Casey was nothing like any of that. And so I sort of realized early on, like, we never even had conversations. Like, she never said, I am not getting, uh, you know, I'm not going to ride in your car and get tetanus until you clean all of that garden. She never said any of that. But like, the first time I was picking her up on a real date, and I was dressed up, and I was ready to pick her up, and I was excited, I looked at my car, like, on the way to her apartment, I look at my car and think, "I I can't put her in this car, you know? So... Nobody do this, but like I rolled down my window and like started throwing trash out. Just like, like seriously, like going down the road. Cause it's like, I'm not going to ask her to ride in this mess. We never had the conversation, but something about her. I just, you know, I, I wanted a clean car for her. Making the bed y'all. Like I, it doesn't make any sense to me, but I got married and then I, I learned some things you don't know without love. So 32 years later, I make the bed most every morning. I make it. I make it. I mean, I make it. Like in college, I had one pillow. It was yellow and hard. But now, like with Casey, we got like pillows, like Joanna Gaines. Like we got all these throw pillows, like a like hundred pillows, Willie Ray, on our beds, like a hundred pillows. But every morning, y'all, I get up, I make that bed, I smooth it out. I put all hundred pillows up there like Joanna Gaines, and I Febreze the whole thing. I'm for breezing, y'all. You know why I'm doing this? Because I want, guys, listen to me. Listen to me. You want your wife to want to get back in that bed with you. I want my wife to love that bed and love me in it. You with me? I want this. And there's not a woman alive who walks by a bed that's like a crack house and thinks, I can't wait to get in that thing, you know? So I make the bed. You just learn this stuff because love will lead you to live in a higher existence. Like the whole, you know, cap on the toothpaste thing. I thought caps on toothpaste were stupid too. You don't need a cap on toothpaste. It only comes out when you squeeze it, you know. So I, but, but Casey was a cap on toothpaste person, you know. So I, I become all of this. Okay, here's the test. Occasionally, Casey will leave home for work. She'll leave town for like a week. And you know what? I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be a good week. I can just go through drive throughs and trash up my car. I can let the bed just lay there like a crack house. I mean, I can just let it just lost sheets lay all over the place. I don't have to put the cap on the toothpaste. I don't have to wash a dish. 
I, I can trim my beard and let the whiskers just lay all over the bathroom. But you know what? After 32 years, mm, I can't live like that, y'all. I, I, I can't live that way. You know, if she's not there, I want that bed made. You know, where are y'all raising a barn? I'm not gonna not have my bed made. And man, I got, y'all, I'm like one of those people now that wants to roll the toothpaste from the bottom of like one of those clamps, you know, like, and, and the cap is on there. Man, I, I tell you, I'm Febreze. I'd Febreze you if you get close to me. I mean, I just, man, do you understand? Not one time did we have a conversation about how I got to clean up my, you know, nasty self to live in a house with her, but but love has this transforming power, you know? And being exposed to a different way of living and, and just being loved very well by a wonderful woman, um, I've been lifted to a higher plane of existence. You know, you know what I mean by that? And that's what Jesus does. That's why the scripture says, you know, those who obey God's word truly show how much they love him. It's about love. I don't follow God and try to keep the rules out of fear. I love him. I just love Jesus. I don't know how to say it any other way. I just love Jesus. And after what he's done for me, after all he's done for me, I'm not going to ask him to come down and bless this mess of my life. I, I, I want to align everything in my life with everything that's right about him. I mean, I want everything about him in, in me, but because I love him, it's love, you all. It's just a relationship of love. And that's why John connects him with love. Those who obey him, they show how completely they love him. It's, it's love. One more thing. You got to get over yourself and you got to give it all. You got to give it all. That's, that's the thing. Some of us are like, we want to follow Jesus, but we just still, we, we, we want to surrender the parts of ourselves that we're ready to give up, but then we like to keep things back for ourselves. And it doesn't work that way. You can't do that. You can't follow two paths and follow Jesus. You can follow Jesus or not, but, but you can't do it on your own terms. You give it all. Christ brings you new life, but not until you die to the life in the world as you have known it. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. It's Christ who lives in me. But understand, all of that comes after a, a death, a crucifixion, my death. I mean, it's the most radical language possible, death, to describe the most radical kind of commitment. You've got to give it all to him. Remember, he's the one who is the sacrifice. It's not that he sacrificed. He is the sacrifice that atones for your sins. He gave it all. So when Jesus would call his followers in his life, he would ask them to take up a cross and follow him. Now, we're used to that language because we know how Jesus died on the cross. But have you ever stopped to wonder what that language would have meant for people who'd never been to an Easter pageant? Like, nobody had ever seen a picture of Jesus on the cross. In those days, nobody anticipated that Jesus would die on a cross. When Jesus told people to pick up a cross and follow him... They knew what crosses were, and they knew what crosses were for. The Roman Empire perfected crucifixion as the most brutal means of public execution. It was public. The Roman Empire would sometimes, in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, they once crucified over 300 people in a single day. They lined the streets with crosses, dead bodies. So when Jesus says, take up a cross and follow me, 
They didn't really know about Jesus and his cross, but they knew what crosses were, and they knew what crosses were for. Jesus was asking them to come and die, to give it all, to surrender. That's why you can't say that you're going to follow Jesus, but then you're still going to do things your way. That's why you can't say, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm still going to sleep with every girl in town. Or I'm going to follow Jesus and live with my boyfriend. You know, I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to get drunk on Fridays. None of this works that way. You, you give him everything. He's Lord of everything. You, you die to yourself. So we call ourselves Christians. Christians. Are you a Christian? The, the word itself. Do you know what it means? Christian. Um, the book of Acts tells us that, that we were first called Christians, which means it's not what we called ourselves. Somebody named us that, which I think is interesting. Somebody named us Christians. It's a Greek word. You can tell that first part is Christ, so it's got something to do with Christ. So when you call yourself a Christian, you're somehow uh, associating your, your life with Jesus, and, and I think that's fair. That's, that's what it is. But I heard a preacher once say that, that a, Christ, a Christian is a little Christ. I like that idea, but that's not what the word means. Not really what the word means at all. When it says that they called us Christians, it's a Greek word, which is Christianos. Christianos. It's the word Christ, the name Christ, with a, a suffix added to it, and it's a very common Greek suffix. When you add that suffix to a word, it changes the meaning of the word to talk about belonging. It changes the meaning of the word so that you can talk about ownership. To be honest with you, it's a slave name. So to be called a Christian, Christianos, is to say that you belong to Christ, but, but more than that, he owns you. You're a slave. Which is to say that he has this authority to command your life. I'm pretty sure that's why... The Apostle John in this passage says that anybody who says that they belong to him but they don't obey him is a liar. They're not walking in the truth. You, you obey him and that's how you show how completely you love him. Obedience. This is how you know that you're living in him. That those who know God will walk as Jesus walked. So if I ask you if you're a Christian, don't answer me with your words. You can answer me with your words, but we would all be missing the point. If someone asks if you're a Christian, you answer with your life. Pray with me. Jesus, we are Christians which is to say that we belong to you and we love belonging to you. You own us. You have bought us with a price, the price of the blood of Jesus, the price of your own life, Lord Jesus. We are delighted that you own us.
that we are your servants, Lord, that you have the power to command our lives, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is at work within us to transform us so that we can be just like you, Lord. We love all of this. We want all of this, but Lord, there is this part of us that continues to resist, this part of us that continues to love ourselves, to, to love our sin. We, we love this world, Lord, and we sometimes just love other things much more than we love you. So God, we find ourselves divided. We, we want to follow this path after you, Lord, but there's this other path that continues to draw us, and Lord, we can't walk both paths. So Jesus, by your love, by your spirit, by the power in your name, will you change us? Will you do for us what we can't possibly do for ourselves? Will you give us a new heart? Will you give us the very mind of Christ? Will you change the way we work with our hands? Will you change the places our feet take us? Will you give us a heart that will love? God, we can't do any of this. We're never going to do any of this apart from you. But thank you for the promise that because of what you've done for us, we will never be apart from you. We'll never have to do this in our own power. We're never expected to do it. Except by walking after you. Letting your love lift us higher. Letting your spirit provide everything necessary. Lord, all you're asking us to do is let you have your way with us. So Lord, with all surrender, we just want to say we're yours. Yours. We're Christians. We belong to you. Have your perfect way with us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.